Welcome to Inside the Vault, the payment security podcast, a show from Very Good Security. This is a show for fintech builders and leaders looking for a deep dive into the intersection of payments and data security. You're about to hear a conversation around payments, fintech, data security, and more. Let's dive right in. Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's episode of Inside the Vault. My name is Amanda Carocchio, and I'm the Director of Partnerships at VGS. Today, we are thrilled to have the one and only Dr. Tahir El-Gamal on Inside the Vault. Tahir is currently the CTO for security at Salesforce, and also, among many, many other accomplishments, he is known as the father of SSL. Tahir, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Amanda. Thank you for inviting me. So to kick everything off, I did just mention that you're known as the father of SSL. Can you tell me a little bit about how SSL came to be? Yeah. So the father of SSL is is Wikipedia decided to call me that. I have no idea where that actually (laughs) came from, but such is life. I uh, went to a company called Netscape in, in late 94, early 95. And that company was the first company that ever built browsers and and web servers for for companies, actually. And the game plan there was how do we use the open network, the internet, to conduct e-commerce? That actually was the goal of the company. And we sort of identified living in an open network and trying to ship transactions and so on was going to be a big security gap. So that's what the idea came from. When I joined, uh, you know, there was already work going on SSL. Then we uh, wrote some patents. So, so Netscape actually owned some patents on SSL that ended up being uh, given away to the ITF when the standard came about. And then we hired very, very good individuals to actually build the initial, what we called SSL3 at the time. And then we took that into the IETF and convinced Microsoft to join with us in in standardizing that that protocol. And the result of that was called TLS 1.0. And that's how it all started. So, you know, whoever decided to call me father of SSL, I think that's... So I did the patent, I hired the team, I sort of... And then I took it to, to the standards committee. So I kind of helped make it successful, I guess. I guess in terms of um, the internet making up names for you, it could be a lot worse. So I say father of SSL is a good one. It could have been worse. <laughs> yes, I can imagine a few worse things. Correct. Awesome. And so you mentioned, obviously, that SSL came to be mostly for e-commerce payments. Have you been following e-commerce payments since? Is there anything that sort of has caught your attention in terms of an interesting innovation in e-com payments? the world changed completely. The first e-commerce payments were actually very simple-minded, you know, put a transaction together and push the shopping cart contents, including the payment thing over an SSL channel, and that was it. You know, since then, that the threats in the world have changed dramatically. People have figured out how to hack into backends and get, you know, information and all of this. So the current payment schemes try to address everything. And if, if you're familiar with the, the PCI standard, for example, that came out of the payment industry to try to address how would a merchant or a payment processor or any other entity actually handle dealing with these things in a secure way. 
And that was to actually address all the threats that came about, because obviously account information is very interesting for people who want to steal information. So it's actually changed completely at this point. Now, now we see a lot of payment methods you can use. It's not only credit cards. You know, PayPal was maybe the first one, but there's like you know 200 other things that came about. So now merchants have a lot of different choices, and most of the payment processors will support like a bunch of them anyways. Got it. And shifting gears a little bit, thinking about the past two years and some change since the pandemic and a lot of our lives moving to more virtual or remote, have you noticed anything from a security perspective that has been a large change? There's more attacks. So obviously, each and every one of us, and I mean us all 7 billion people, have done things electronically when we did not, right? So, so everybody's now shopping. Every All shopping went digital. All you know, food orders and everything became digital. In addition to this kind of thing, right? Zoom calls and and so on are are really how people meet these days. So we're more dependent on the digital platform, and by virtue of that, obviously the threats grew because obviously people figured, oh, there's more interesting things we can do here. So the, the threat vectors have changed, and you know you see ransomware now is a major thing. All companies worry about ransomware as an attack vector. You still hear, you know, even major companies sort of saying, "Hey, we got millions of people accounts breached, and you know we're gonna cover your your identity theft costs for a year, that kind of thing." So, so you know, the the pandemic did actually change how all people did business and and not just business and and just social activity. Right. And double clicking, you did mention that all companies are facing ransomware attacks, all these kinds of attacks. Are there any security top three best practices that you think almost any enterprise could adopt to make their security posture better? So there are uh, three is an interesting random number you pick, which <laughs> which I, I admire, obviously. Random numbers are good. Um, the first thing is how to limit access. So, so knowing that there are things that are stored on people's devices, network, storage, public clouds, that data is valuable to others. So it's definitely worth investing in access. And access is is multiple things. The simplest thing is passwords. So so adding complexity to pad. Now you can see that you know if you talk to any of the major vendors, they say use two-factor authentication, for example, because guessing passwords has just become a really a really simple thing. People find passwords or guess them or whatever. People use the same passwords all over the place. So that's kind of the number one thing. The number two thing is all the security controls that we've been building over the last 20, 30 years adapted themselves to how do we run this digital world. And most of these are how do we build security controls to enable or disable access that may be authorized or unauthorized. The interesting thing is all of this is to actually protect data at the end of the day. If somebody walks inside of an empty building, for example, we're not going to you know, bother too much. 
I mean, maybe a strange case, but but it's not really it's not the thief that we're afraid of. If if one, somebody that looks like a thief walks into a bank and they look like they know how to rob a bank, that is actually a dangerous thing. So protecting the money in the bank is the same as protecting data in, in the digital world because data is actually the valuable thing, including money itself is also data at that point in time. You know, the world is kind of waking up to the fact that it, there's a lot of different ways one can do this. And it does benefit from limiting access as well. So, so if less and less people can guess how somebody logs into something, then obviously less simple attacks will happen. There are more sophisticated attacks and there are attacks that kind of land some malware on a machine and try to use it and all of that stuff. So these do exist and they're interesting and serious. So I think the world now demands a separate layer of just protecting cloud data, if you if you want to call it cloud. We use the word cloud for everything now. So, And do you think that's like tokenization or just anything that can kind of limit not only access to the data, but then the data itself? Like what are some practices to limit that data? Yeah, tokenization is an interesting technique. Tokenization grew up because the world kind of figured out, oh my God, if, if somebody figures out how to get credit card numbers out of transactions, they can do anything with these numbers until somebody figures out, oh, there's unauthorized transactions. So the, the, the tokenization technique was invented to replace a credit card number by, some, by something that looks like a credit card number, but it actually isn't. And that was necessary because the, the machines that processed these things, you know, just shipped 16 dishes from one place to another. And if you tried to do something other than 16 dishes, everything will crash. And nobody wanted that. So that's why tokenization actually started. From a cryptography standpoint, it's an interesting thing and maybe required in the credit card or the social security number, which is the same thing. It's a, it's a nine-digit number. Encryption at large provides more protection because now we have a secret and, and you know, the result doesn't look like anything and, and people have to work harder. To so, so a mix of all of these schemes is probably what we need at the end of the day. Got it. Multiple tools in the toolkit. Yeah, we're never going to find a silver bullet. That's actually the most important thing for people to realize. Protecting data online, there's just no silver bullet. It's, it's layers after layers, and some of them have to do with protection. Some of them have to do with detecting that this, this thing doesn't look right. All of these combine and limiting logins and actually encrypting data the appropriate way. The combination has a lot of potential. So if there's no silver bullet, do you feel like you or people in your position or similar positions are constantly having to think like an, like an attacker and sort of find these holes? Is that a lot of your job? So that's not, not personally, but when, when you're thinking of the security program in a big company, there are definitely individuals who are trying to attack themselves to find out if there are gaps within their, their controls that somebody can sneak in and, and steal data. And if they get in, can they get data out? All of these things are kind of experiments. So yes, there are teams inside of the bigger security teams that want to think like hackers. 
There are also companies that specialize in that. So you can hire a third party that will help you do this and they will tell you, you know, if you close this down or hide this or encrypt that, you know, you have a better posture. And that is all part of building a security program that actually is, is sustainable, basically. Thinking back to the beginning of your career, I know you spent some time on the farm at Stanford, which is near and dear to my heart as well. <laughs> but there's a lot of conversation of, I've heard you speak on Silicon Valley at the time was kind of on the precipice. And then fast forward, Silicon Valley became what we know of it now. And then now there's a conversation of, hey, is Silicon Valley sort of losing its stronghold in terms of the spot for innovation? Do you have any thoughts on that and kind of the future of Silicon Valley, especially as it pertains to security? I think smart people get attracted to other smart people. So it is kind of true that some large companies are moving their headquarters out of the Silicon Valley just because it's expensive, actually. But attracting the younger smart people is not going away. And I don't think it would ever actually go away because the new person who's just graduating from a good university, maybe Stanford, maybe something else, want to start their career working with smart people. And a lot of these smart people are here. The Silicon Valley has a lot of startups. The number of startups is not slowing down in all aspects of the, of the digital world and other things, actually. So I, I don't believe that is the case. I think it's just because it's very expensive to live in the Silicon Valley and that the world now does not require anybody to be in any physical location to work in any place. We all work from wherever we want to work. I think that combination is, is making it easier for people to move to remote locations or live in the place they actually love and still work in the company they want to work at. So it's a different environment. But, but it, I do not believe that the attraction of the younger, smart people who are getting into college or graduating from college, wanting to change the world is going to change. They're, they're still actually coming, not just the Silicon Valley, other places, but the Silicon Valley is definitely the premier one still. I tend to agree, but I guess we'll have to see how, how everything changes or doesn't change. Is there anything that keeps you up at night from a security perspective? You know, there are things that we kind of haven't figured out yet because the attacker seems to always have the edge. You know, imagine a building with like 700 doors and windows. Uh, the attacker needs to find only one of these that is actually open or slightly open or maybe easy to open to get in. While the teams inside that are trying to protect the house have to protect every single one of the 700. So it's not a symmetric game. It's very, very asymmetric. And success for an attacker does not mean bring the entire thing down. It means, oh, I found some data. I'm going to post it online someplace. That is actually success. Or I found some credit card numbers and I'm going to sell them for X. That is actually success for an attacker. Or, you know, found data about people and, and, and you know, the, the extortion thing that happens with, with ransomware and so on. The, the defense mechanisms have to work extra hard to protect against an attacker finding just one of these doors to, to sneak in from. So it's, uh, it's not really a fair game, I guess you could say. It's not a fair game. It's not a fair game. And what about collaboration? Like, do you think there's more collaboration on the attacker side versus sort of if we focus on enterprise security, like across enterprises? 
Well, so historically, the, the, the attackers all know each other. They're groups that they connect with each other. They share tools. They use each other's tools. You know, and now it's becoming productized. You can, you can go out and, and buy an hour worth of a SaaS a hacking tool. It's kind of hilarious, but true. And they're professional people. They're actually smart. They're not dumb. They're, they're building very smart things. And people who are building the tools are not the people who are using the tools. They're actually different people. So building a hacking tool, you know, could be a technical endeavor that somebody just wants to do something. And sometimes the hacking tools are the same things that you used to protect also. So it gets used on both sides. But we're making, we're making it very easy for, for, you know, the bad guys basically to get access to things. Then on the enterprise side of things, do you think there needs to be more collaboration across enterprises? Or is there anything today that is working? That's starting to, you know, uh, many years ago that the industries started these things we call ISACs, information security groups, right? So, so it, it's for, for sharing. It's for information sharing. And, you know, the financial services ISAC is, is probably the most successful and the most known one. And, and, you know, the banks and the financial institutions do share information. You know, some people share things with governments and, and, you know, there's other ISACs, but the sharing is at a lower level than somebody would actually like to see. I think we all benefit when everyone is well protected. There is a funny thing in, in the world that says, as long as you're stronger than the person next door, you're okay, because they're going to go attack the, the person next door. That actually is kind of, you know, there is truth to it, but it's not really true. I think we want all of us combined. We want a digital world that is just better protected. And that requires sharing because, because when somebody needs a, sees a group attacking something in a particular way and they share that information with others, then the others are more protected. And at large, we all benefit from each other's information. And I would think too, just not being the weakest link doesn't really work in a world where we're all so connected, right? Like we're all very connected, correct? And actually, a lot of a lot of the attacks use one door to attack the the neighbor, which is the connectivity in the in the digital world, right? And thinking back over the course of your entire career, what do you think the biggest change has been from a security perspective? Well, the connectivity actually is the biggest change because the level of connectivity now makes that the, the, the traditional security controls not enough. We used to think that putting a firewall at the, at the door of each one of our you know, houses is enough because that's where everything goes in and out. It is no longer the case. Our phones get access to things. So if anybody can succeed in getting access to one of our devices, they, they will get the access, regardless of where actually the firewall sits. So the security model itself is changing and does need to change to protect the asset rather than protect the doors, basically. I know we've been focusing a lot on enterprise security. Is there anything from a personal security perspective that you think just individuals can kind of use, or is it the same thing, access control <laughs> and passwords? Don't reuse the passwords. I mean, password managers, password managers honestly are not my favorite, but I use one because it's kind of, it keeps all your passwords and you have to remember the one password. 
you still have a password as it turns out so if if the master password is one two three four five six then obviously that does not going to protect anything but people need to be aware of what they do you, you can't just blindly type anything anywhere and think this is actually protected the connected world the digital world we're building together and living in needs people to be aware it's kind of like you know, you, you take someone and you throw them in the middle of a city that they have never been in before. The human brain is is in tune with what a bad area in a city should look like, just naturally, because whatever. In the digital world, that is not the case, because they actually look very similar. So, so we need to raise awareness in the way that we we as humans can detect oh, this site doesn't look like the site I want to be on. Maybe I should check twice before I click kind of thing. So, you know, people still click on links from from entities they do not know. Maybe on Tuesday afternoons for some reason. I do not know why, but that's what happens. We just need to learn, you know, when, when the ATM cards came about many years ago, a few decades ago, people always wrote their pin on the back of the card. So the pin is is kind of the password in this case. And of course, that defeats the purpose because stealing the card basically means somebody has access to your account, which is not a cool thing. But we now learn. So, So the number of people who do that kind of thing is going down. Now, getting access to the world in a digital form is different. And we just need to watch out for, you know, the gotchas that we we're facing every day. So do you think we have passwords in five, 10 years, or do you think they go away? I hope not. But, I mean, you know, people blame me for, for the existence <laughs> of passwords. Maybe I'm guilty as that. And, and part of the reason is when we did SSL, we actually had a client-side authentication inside of SSL from the very beginning that we could have used to log in without a password. In, in the thinking at the time, remember, this is 30 years back, in the thinking at the time, deploying that would not be possible. It would be either very expensive or no, nobody would adopt it. So, you know, we started just throwing a password in. And now, you know, I, I don't know how many passwords any, anybody has, but there is 100 probably passwords on the average for every individual. And, you know, most of these things you use once a year or once every couple of years. And, of course, nobody's going to ever remember those. So, so the idea of a password is just wrong for the digital world access. And, you know, th- there's a lot of technology being put together, uh, a lot of new things that, that I advise everybody to look into. How do I get rid of passwords within an enterprise and as a consumer? Shifting gears to three quick questions. Number one, what's your favorite book? My favorite book is, I like ancient history books. So there's actually several of them. I grew up in Egypt, so I'm Egyptian by heritage. And there's just a number of of, of these books that are so interesting to read for for people. I I can send you names if, if you'd like. Awesome. Speaking of Egypt... A question from our CEO, who was also born in Egypt. What does your last name mean? It means the camel. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. So L is the, is the same L, is, is the Spanish L, right? So it's the camel. He would, he would actually know what it means. And, you know, the story says that our great, great, great grandfather, who apparently was a, a contemporary of Napoleon times, 
was extremely a large person, so they just called him the camel, and and the name stuck, <laughs> and we're all stuck with it at this point. That's what I heard. I, I cannot validate it or or not. It, it's kind of it is what it is. <laughs> it's funny because he that was actually a question that Mahmoud told me to ask, and I I thought it was going to be something mathematic or related to algebra. I did not expect that. <laughs> It's a real last name. It's not something I made up for myself. No. Yeah. Okay. And the last question that I have for you is, what's the last TV show that you watched? I don't watch TV. No TV at all? I, what I about watch, movie? I, movie. I do watch movies. I, I like the Matrix movie, so I watched the latest Matrix one. Nice. Well, Tahir, I want to thank you so much for being on the podcast today and I learned a ton. I'm sure our listeners did as well. And so with that, that about wraps us up. If you have any suggestions, you can email us at pod at verygoodsecurity.com. And until next week, thanks for tuning in. You've been listening to Inside the Vault, the payment security podcast, a show from Very Good Security. Keep connected with us by subscribing to the show in your favorite podcast app. If you've liked what you've heard, please rate the show. That helps us to keep delivering the latest from the realms of payments and data security. Thanks for listening. Until next time.